Hello, welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name's Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hey, Guthrie. And you want to tell us about our very special guest today. Yes, we have a guest today. We have Amy Buker. And Amy is the, she has this great title that you'll appreciate, Guthrie, Vice President of Behavior Change at MadPow. And uh, we're, we're definitely going to talk about that. And, and I want to mention that we're going to talk about a book that she wrote recently um, called Engaged, Designing for Behavior Change. So welcome, Amy. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And uh, we, you and I have messaged a couple times on LinkedIn, and I think we know about each other, but this is actually the first time we've ever, you know, had more than a, than the five-minute conversation we had before we got through press the record button, right? <laughs> we met one time a few years oh, ago. we did? We both, see, now we I'm going to be embarrassed. No, oh, yeah. Okay. No, you're right. Where, where was that? It was at the Habit Summit. It was That's near right. Isles Habit Summit in right. San Francisco. San Francisco, and Guthrie, yeah. you were you were there. That was a long time yeah, ago. I remember that. Wasn't that like 2015 or something like uh, that? Maybe 16. I already, yeah, I was already at MadPow. I've been there a little over four years, so, so it must have been somewhere. Yes, yeah, so 16, 2017. Yeah, that was a great conference. I, yeah, that was. That was really cool. So, um, when did your book come out? It's very recent, right? It is. It came out on March 3rd. Oh, uh, really recent. Yeah, yeah. Very poor timing with respect to the COVID yeah. pandemic. Yeah. But a great, it's, uh, it's, and I know Matt at MadPow, obviously with your title, you do this work. And that's a great, that's such a funny title, Vice President of Behavior Change. Does anyone ever ask you whether you're responsible for the behavior change of the people at MadPow? <laughs> No, but I think it's because we also have a group that's called Design Transformation that specifically focuses on, you know, how teams work together and how they can be yeah. effective. So I think they've gotten that question and I get off the hook because they exist. That's good. <laughs> I, I I know that um, certainly like one of the questions we sort of get asked or people, it's not even a question, but people just sort of assume that because we deal with behavioral science and because we, you know, talk about processes and communication sometimes and um, sort of, you know, the corporate culture, that kind of stuff that like everything we that we are Jesus and everything we do is perfect. And that all the designs we've ever created, at, like our website and stuff are the, like the pinnacle of design perfection. And it's like, well, that's true, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not true. Uh, you know, the other thing I here's here's another thing we get. And Amy, I wonder if you get this. I'm actually um I, I took notes while I was reading your book, so I have I have a page of notes of things I want to talk about. I uh, hope that's not too nerdy. But um, one of the things is on uh, on page seventy three, <laughs> you have a um, a lit, you're talking about cognitive bias, which is you know of course something that that we talk about too in our work. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the question we get is, well, because you guys know all yeah. about cognitive biases. That means you don't fall prey to them, right? And it's like, uh, <laughs> no, that's not true. Um, what I usually say is no, but I might recognize faster after I have. But do you ever get that question? People think because you know this stuff, then it, you won't do it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I find that it's helpful sometimes to talk about some of my own behavior change struggles. There are certainly things that I'm really good at um, crafting for myself. So somebody recently asked me this, actually, like, give me an example of a behavior change that you were able to design for yourself successfully and one that you weren't. And I am a really, I'm really good at exercising. Like I just, I know myself, I, I respond really well to accountability. I respond really well to data and feedback. And so Years ago, I kind of crafted for myself, this is the way I'm going to do exercise. I'm going to track everything and I'm going to have this, you know, running list of all the workouts I've done and I'm going to have goals attached to it and I'm going to share some of it publicly. And it's been really effective for me. But on the other hand, I actually eat pretty poorly because I love food and I, it's part of my social life, or at least it was, but when we still were able to go out to restaurants and, um, you know, part of the way that I show love for people is cooking and baking. And so, um, you know, I don't eat 
nearly as well as you might think from somebody who works in health behavior change. And it's like, I know all the tools. I just can't seem to find the right set to apply to myself because the pleasures I get out of this behavior are, are so much. And I think it's sort of similar to the cognitive bias thing. Like I can totally tell you what's going on there, but it doesn't mean that it's easy for me to stop being human and, and, you know, exert my professional skills all the time on myself. Yeah. Behavior change is actually very hard. But one of the problems I have in crafting my own behavior change for myself is I sort of have a problem with authority, and that sort of includes myself. So, you know, it's 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 difficult. You know, kind of got. You mean if you put together a system for some behavior change, you might not follow through with it because you think you're being too authoritarian on yourself. I feel like like a reverse psychology would be really effective on me. Like very like basically being like oh like you're not good enough to to do this so you're definitely not going to do that but you can't reverse like you can't kind of like a reverse psychology or like uh like say bad things about yourself because that's not good either so it's very <laughs> it's very it's very difficult yeah i found not so much for myself but when i've done work with you know when i've done user research and stuff like that talking to people that sometimes people who generally have issues with authority are okay with it if they know that it's constrained to a certain area. Like I'm hiring you to be my coach and I know that you're going to yell at me and be a drill sergeant. But I also know that that is within the confines of this really specific relationship that I've agreed to, as opposed to it's just going to come out of the blue and, you know, be peppered in with a broader relationship that we have. But it sounds like maybe that doesn't work for you. You can't carve out a little drill sergeant part of yourself. Um, I mean, I, I can, I can like, I can get there. It's not, it's not like, I don't have a terrible problem with authority. It's just like a light one where it's like, I'm doing this. Like if someone, if, if I have like a drill sergeant, like uh, like workout coach or something, you know, I would definitely be into it, but really only because I'm, I would maybe like be like that internally anyways. So, so the drill sergeant, it's nice. It's sort of, it's like, like I'm happy to go along, but you know, it's it, that person sort of bringing out what I already am feeling and doing. So if they're like, hey, go like do this other thing and I don't feel like doing it, I'm gonna be like, eh, eh, maybe, maybe I just, you know. Um, so a drill sergeant right. for the things you were gonna do anyway works. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be good. Uh, if I had, if I had like a, uh, a soundtrack to my life, that would be really nice, like backing music. That would just that, you, know, you know that that would be motivating. Yeah, you know, it's gonna be intense. And I think it's it's um, you know this is a, brings up I think an interesting point, which is it's complicated to do behavior change, and and some of it you know, and I, actually this is one of the things on my list that I want to talk about, which is um, how variables change, because sometimes it changes, but some of it is also it unfortunately can get down to very specific motivations of a particular person in a particular situation. I mean, I think I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want people listening to think, oh, see the stuff they do, it doesn't work because you can't craft behavior change for more than one person, or maybe you can't even craft it for one person, but you certainly can't craft it for several individuals. But that and that's not necessarily true because there are things that we know that most people tend to do or not do in certain situations. But I think it oftentimes it does come down to these, you know, Guthrie talks a lot about, you know, how it's very nuanced and um, how in a and I think you said this too in 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 your section on behavior change design process. I mean, you you can craft a solution that you think will result in behavior change but you have to test it because that's when you'll find out that maybe the variables we thought were going to be at play are a little different than the ones that are really at play and so you've got to change it a little bit based on what you learned yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think we we use the existing science to make our best guess about what will be an effective intervention, how it should look in design, but we absolutely have to test it. 
with the people who'll be using it and in the context that they'll be using it as much as we can. I think we're seeing this right now with coronavirus, actually. it's it's um And it's been frustrating for me, I'll say that, as a behavior change professional, to see that there is such a diversity of behavior around some of these safety measures, like, um, you know, wearing masks and how, how much and the ways in which people might go use public services. But I think one of the things that we're seeing is that we actually don't know very much about how people behave in a global pandemic because we haven't lived through one before. So we're seeing live the importance of really understanding a context in understanding how people will behave and figuring out the right types of interventions to move their behavior. One of the, um, the, the tools that I found works especially well for me, I guess I was thinking about this, has been um, less on the motivation side and more on the habit side. Mm-hmm. So, um, for example, I leave the sponge, the wet, soppy sponge out when I do dishes. Just a habit from my... I, I never had a place before where you put the sponge back. It, like, it has a designated place. So... Um, now I'm living with someone who has a designated place for the sponge. And after I wash the dishes, I need to put the sponge back in the designated location. So for the longest time, I just wouldn't because it was just, I never done it in my life. It just wasn't my habit. So, you know, I, I just, you know, put up a little visual cue for myself so that every time I would wash the dishes, I would see the cue and then remember to put the sponge in. So I was able to kind of get that and now and now I do it just fine. And there's been a bunch of those where I can change the behavior through, you know, a cue and then a habit and then my habit becomes the behavior. Um, that has seemed to be successful. But some of the, yeah, some of the motivation stuff, I think, um, I think has been the hardest for me personally. And I wonder if that, if that's true for everyone or if that's just a me thing. When you say hardest for you personally, do you mean in thinking about how you craft your own behavior, or are you thinking more about when you do your work in designing interventions for other people? When I'm when I'm crafting my own behavior, I I always think of it so, and I have trouble articulating this. Actually, it's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and trying to draw, which is not really a strong skill of mine. So I haven't made it very far there. But um, when I look at kind of the full toolkit of behavior change tools, there are things like, um, you know, your nudges, your behavioral economics-based tactics. And I think a lot of what goes into habit formation, I would also put in that sort of toolkit of things that they're more environmental sculpts that will prompt often one-time behaviors or something like what you mentioned with a sponge. It's a repeated behavior, but there's not necessarily a lot of variation each time you do it. It's a pretty simple, straightforward thing, like takes a couple seconds, then it's done. Um, and I think of those as almost coming at the beginning of a behavior change process. Like you, you can change your environment, you can set things up so that certain parts of a complicated behavioral routine become really easy to do. You don't have to think about them. But then there's all this stuff that remains hard because it's complicated or it's effortful. Um, I, I end up talking about exercise a lot here and I, I I do exercise a lot personally, but I'm not like obsessed with it. Um, it's just a good example that most people are familiar with in terms of an effortful behavior change where even once you get good at it, there's a significant time that you would be putting into it. Um, you know, you're even things like you're going to sweat on your clothes, right? So you're going to have to take a shower and change your clothes afterwards, most likely. Um, and I think it's really hard to make something like that truly a habit because it just always involves so much so much stuff, so much preparation, so much planning, so many ancillary behaviors. And so that's where I start to see motivation being more of a necessary thing to think about because you you really need to consciously make that decision each time that like you know, maybe you've made certain parts of the behavior habitual. We all have heard the advice about like, you know, packing your gym bag and putting it by the door so you don't have to hunt around for your stuff. And those things certainly make it easier. But at some point, I think you still do have to make that conscious decision of, okay, I'm going to go out the door now and and engage in this activity, and I'm going to do all the necessary stuff to make it happen. And that's where I think motivation does need to come in. So yeah, I do do think it's a little bit more difficult. Um, I have certainly seen people who've put in a lot of work at clarifying what their purpose is, and that's the language that they would probably use as purpose. And people who have gone through that thought process almost seem 
superhuman sometimes and their ability to continually connect back to that motivation and figure out how they want to behave based on it. I see that as kind of a goal end state that I personally have not achieved yet. So can I tell you what was the, my most successful um, tactic in going to the gym regularly? Yeah. So I, 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 I like to work out anyway. So like I'm going to work out kind of regardless. I like going to the gym. Though obviously there are no gyms open that I'm going to. But um, the, the situation that had worked the best for me is I got a gym membership to a gym that was right above my main grocery store. And so I, if I was hungry and I needed food... I basically had to go to the gym because I was already driving to the grocery store to get food anyways. So that was like, that was my, that was a great motivator, which is I need to cook dinner. I guess I'm going to the gym today. <laughs> so that was, that was very useful for me. And I want, I'm wondering, as I was listening to you talk about this, Amy, it made me think of um, two things. So one is that I'm a big fan of the idea of self stories and i don't know if you know uh we we talk often and i talk a lot when i give talks and stuff about timothy wilson and his book redirect we Mm -hmm. do you you know that book or do you know i do i have a copy yeah so we had him on the podcast ages ago and um you know this idea that the self story that you you have about a particular thing, like exercising or whatever, uh, drives your behavior so much. So if you're like, and often these are are unconscious, because I was thinking about what you said about, you know, purposeful, right, which can, which can often be conscious. But I think there is this, I think if you have a strong unconscious story, purpose, drive, motivation, I think that that can be very helpful in in driving the conscious behaviors. And I was starting to think about it like schema, you know, this idea of if you if you have the story that you know I'm the kind of person that puts um, taking care of myself, you know, is a really high priority. And if I'm gonna, you know, if I'm gonna organize my day, it's 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 not going to go to the bottom of the list, you know. Exercise is going to be at the top of the list because I know that I need to do that in order to really take care of myself and I'm the kind of person who, you know, that's a high priority. So I, I just think there's this idea of an organizing schema or principle that if you have that that story, it makes all these other things, right, about motivation and about the small steps that lead to the big steps and Thing and being purposeful and conscious about it, it just makes all of that so much easier, right? Because it frames your entire series of decisions. The, the decisions then become very easy and become part of this coherent whole. And, you know, we like coherence, right? We like to think that our actions are in concert with this image we have of ourselves. So I, for me, like I'm thinking about, um, I made a, a big change about a year and a half ago uh, to uh, change. I, I follow, for about a year and a half, I've been following a, a ketogenic diet. Mm-hmm. And there's probably people out there that know what that is and probably people that don't. But let's just say that it's, it's a, it's a, fairly, I mean, one could call it strict, you know, there's lots of things you're not going to eat on a keto diet, and lots of things you are going to eat on a keto diet, and although I ate healthy before, it was a a change, it's always a change, and it has been the absolute, one of the simplest things I've ever done, I mean, I, I do not, this is not, for me, this is not difficult at all. And I think there are a lot of people, I know people who say, oh my God, I couldn't keep, you know, I couldn't <laughs> do it. But for me, it's very easy. But I think that's because I, it, like I made this big unconscious self-story change. And so I am not constantly making decisions every day 
about, you know, should I eat this or should I, shouldn't I eat that? I think it's easier when you have these very, if you can turn this, your behavior into a black and white, I think that, you know, into a yes, no, into a, I do this, I don't do this. I, you know, I remember when, um, uh, and maybe that's part of habit. I think it is part of habit because I remember when, uh, uh, my children were growing up and they did Suzuki music. I don't know if you know anything about Suzuki music. No, um, I don't. It's a whole way of learning to play an instrument and learning music. And, and it's what's really big. It's really big. Suzuki, who, who was a Japanese guy who started, who passed away several years ago, but he had a phrase, which is only practice on the days you eat, <laughs> meaning you have to practice every day. And what I realized with the with the kids and having the practice and so on was if we didn't practice every day, then every day we had to stop and make the decision, are we going to practice today? But if you if that wasn't a question, right? Mm -hmm. if, if of course you're gonna practice, you know, do you mm. eat? Yes. Do you breathe? Mm. Yes. Then you're gonna practice. Then it became the, it became very easy to practice every day because, you know, you brush your teeth every day, you practice music every day. It just was one of those things you do. Yeah, yeah. You you brought up a couple things for me when you were just talking there. One is um, a, a framework that Gretchen Rubin actually. Are you familiar with her work? No, I'm not. Okay, she's actually, I believe she's a journalist by training, but she's written a number of books over the years on happiness, which is a topic that interests me. And then she wrote a book about habits. And I believe that one of her more recent books is also about a personality typology. But one of the, the kind of frameworks that she put forth in her happiness work was that people are either an abstainer or a moderator. So they either have that black and white thinking you were thinking about where they can, you know, decide this is the behaviors I do and these are the behaviors I don't do. And now it's very easy because it every behavior either falls into the yes or the no category. Or then there's the moderators who prefer to make more of a case by case judgment. And, you know, these might be the people where it's not black and white. Um, I definitely in listening to you talk, I personally am much more of a moderator. I don't I don't tend to think of my behaviors in that black or white. And so you know, I, I totally agree with you about the schema idea. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it aligns really nicely with the way that self-determination theory talks about motivational quality, right? So if you have these autonomous forms of motivation, what they what they really are is that you think of yourself a certain way. You have goals and values and you're a certain type of person and you're going to do the behaviors that are consistent with that. Of course, then some of the work is helping people see that behave, you know, certain behaviors are consistent with that. You, you do have to make that realization in order for things to fall into place. But even within that, there can still be some variation. And I mean, to use my exercise example, I, I don't, well, I don't do the same type of exercise every day. I suppose I get some exercise every day, but it's not the sort of thing that I find easy to totally automate or make habitual because if you think about, um, so I'm primarily a runner and I think a lot about, um, you know, there are times where I push my distance and try to go longer or faster than I normally do. And then there are times where I'm planning more of a gentle recovery run. And then there are days where I don't want to run at all because I want to give my body a chance to recover. And so there is this sort of conscious decision making with the understanding that I will do some form of this behavior. Right, right. You know, whereas something like brushing my teeth, that is so routine at this point. Like I always do it in the same place with the same equipment at roughly right. the same time of day. So even though it, it also takes a little bit of time, it's a lot easier for me to just do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, this is why, you know, designing for behavior change is a complicated thing, right? It is. I, I'll tell you, one of the things I really love about my work is, you know, I do a lot of research where I talk to people and people are just so different. They're so interesting. Everybody has their own little quirks and the ways that things work for them. And I guess this gets back to your point before as well, that to some degree, really successful behavior change is individual. But when we're thinking about populations, we can make some very good educated guesses that help us build tools that will help a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think because I really do think that, yeah, it's just a, it's like a it's like a paradox because on the one hand, everyone is different and they really are. But on the other hand, 
we humans do tend to react very similarly to certain situations. You know, they definitely do. Yeah, yeah. And one of um, I'm not generally a fan of large survey research, but one thing that has captured my attention, and I, I did talk about this a little bit in the book, is there have been a number of surveys of universal human values. What do people care about if you mm-hmm. probe and figure out, you know, it, their most deep sort of personal values? And these sorts of surveys consistently find that there's a really limited set of things that people value. And, and to me, that's just so intriguing because, um, first of all, they're things that I find personally resonant. And that makes total sense, right? If these are universal human values, I'm <laughs> But but it's like, you know, family and community and being a a good citizen of the earth and professional accomplishment. And what I take away from that is that even though the way that those things get expressed in any individual's life are going to be very unique and very personal, as designers, we can still create a framework that encourages people to think about those things. What that what does that mean for you? So we can basically design something that's general, but has room for the specific within it. Right. So uh, the. A classic example would be, you know, a lot of people, especially in the United States, really believe strongly in liberty. But, of course, how you express that, whether it's the, well, liberty for the individual, where I get to sort of do what I want, or liberty, we have to prevent, you know, the the minority groups from being trampled by the majority. Like, how, how you express those ideals, could you, you can be on the exact opposite side of an issue even though both sides are really just trying, are kind of want the same thing. Um, so that, that, yeah, makes, that yeah. makes things difficult. Yeah, and I, uh, with, um, so I use self-determination theory quite a bit in my work. And one of the reasons I like it is it has a really robust evidence base. It, you know, it's just, it's been around for about 40 years. There's a, a lot of people who use it and publish on it. So I, I feel like there's always a good sort of literature review that I can incorporate into my project when I'm using self-determination theory. And so it's been it's been validated globally. But the one difference that seems to come up in terms of people's basic psychological needs is this idea of autonomy, which is having the ability sure. to make personally meaningful choices. That looks different in different cultures, where in some more collectivist cultures, personally meaningful choice could mean like for my family unit or, you know, for the group of people who I, I basically consider part of myself. So I, I think that's, first of all, just fascinating. But secondly, what I what I find funny is even though professionally I really understand this personally, as someone who grew up in, you know, this individualistic American culture, I'm born and raised in the United States, I'm like, oh, that's so strange. Like, I can't imagine feeling like something that my parents chose for me is personally meaningful. So it's just funny that even with that, I, I can sort of be a split self and see it differently as from my professional and my personal viewpoints. Absolutely. Um, should, should we talk about uh, the is speaking as we start to talk about the industry? Should we talk about the industry? Sure, let's do it. All right. So uh, behavior change, hot right now. So, so hot. V- very, <laughs> very in... Um, are you, are you feeling that momentum as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, so I, I got my PhD in 2006 in psychology and I went directly into industry and the first few jobs that I had, I felt like I had to apologize for having advanced training in psychology (laughs) because it was weird. Like what is somebody with this degree doing looking in in, for a design job? Um, and I'm, I'm exaggerating just a little bit. Um, there, but you know, I definitely felt like there wasn't a pattern for me to follow. I had to kind of craft my own job and sort of, uh, you know, raise my hand and say, I have this skill set. You know, I can do research and then I can take insights from that research and help bring it into design. And it's going to do things a little bit differently, and uh, you know, hopefully better or adds add some positive to the outcome. And I would say in the last maybe five or six years, all of a sudden I'm seeing job titles that have behavior change in them. You know, I, I work, my job title has behavior change in it. My my company, MadPow, has a behavior change design team, a discipline that my colleague Dustin Tomaso started about 10 years ago. Like that, I wouldn't have imagined when I started my career. So I'm, I'm definitely seeing that there's more of this understanding of what behavior change can bring to various disciplines. And, and yeah, just um, someone sent me the other day, McKinsey is trying to hire a behavior 
what did they call it? I think they called it behavior designer. And of course, the job description for it wasn't probably what you or I would write, but just the fact that, you know, this huge consulting organization is now thinking that behavior change is something they should bring in. I'm like, oh, okay, we are having a moment. Right. And well, to me, I find it so, what I find it so interesting is, and I know, I know this happened to Susan with uh, UX. When she first, I don't want to say when she first started, a while back, like <laughs> UX usability, you know, user experience was this technical niche field where, you know, you had, you know, there were a lot of specialists who this was their thing and they had degrees in psychology and it was this very specialized thing and then it became popular. And suddenly, right, you had this, uh, you had this large sophomoric effect where this body of knowledge that was very cool suddenly became dispersed across to everyone. And so today, I think what we find, because we do a fair bit of you know you, more UX things, though we, we do a lot of um, behavioral change, behavioral science, behavioral econ stuff too, but also a lot of just kind of uh, nuts and bolts user experience uh, work. The, um, the number of people who are doing UX work or interested in UX, the number of jobs is way more than it's ever been before. Mm-hmm. And yet the average sort of technical knowledge of the person doing that work has come down. And so I, I don't know if you're experiencing this too, maybe both things are happening at the same time, but I'm seeing, for example, a lot of ad agencies, they're running with all of these um, a lot, a lot of these theories, information, behavior change, um, behavioral science research in their stuff, um, and but like they're they're not using the words that I would use. They're not really saying the thing that I would say. It's it's like it's right, but it's wrong. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, and I, you know, we're not on camera with each other, but I've been nodding my head while you talk. I, <laughs> I absolutely, I see that and I struggle with it. One yeah. of the reasons I even wrote a book, um, you know, I, I've always done a lot of speaking. I like doing that. I go to various events or whatever. I write a lot. And so I um, would have people reach out to me probably like one or two a month, actually. Um, you know, usually people early in their careers who either had a behavior science background or a UX background saw the stuff I was doing, thought it was interesting. They were curious about having a career that blends both. And I never was able to find a good resource to point them to that was sort of for the beginning career where, um, you know, this is a nuanced view of how behavior science could help shape your design, your design skills or be a part of your design toolkit. And so I, I wrote the book partly to, you know, create that resource for people and encourage people who don't have a very deep or long behavior change background, like maybe somebody who's never taken a psychology course, I think that we can still equip them to do some of these behavior change activities. And I wanted to, to do that. But I also, and I've said this to people, I'm hopeful that they will simultaneously learn enough through the book and through hopefully some other resources to recognize when there may be a need for you know more more behavior change sophistication. Because one of the things that I, I see sometimes, and you, you know, you mentioned ad agencies, and I think that's a great example of where you sometimes start to get into this gray area where behavior change principles or behavior change tools are used in a way that may not quite be on the right side of the ethical line. And they're not blatantly wrong, but they haven't been chosen with the consideration that somebody who has more training or experience might have put into it. And so I I find myself like on the one hand, I want everybody to use behavior change. I want everybody to be excited about it. But on the other, I realize that there are certain advantages to having people who do have that really deep and long training involved in using it. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll have to we'll at some point we'll have to address. We'll talk briefly about ethics. We every podcast we do about behavior eventually just devolves into an ethical conversation. <laughs> like I said, the, every time we talk, we, we give any talk. That's always the question. So we'll we'll definitely have to address it. Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, I think maybe Susan said this earlier in our conversation too. Like there, there tends to be this perception from other people that if you're doing behavior change, like you have total control, you know exactly what <laughs> outcomes you're going to get, and they're sure. consistent across every person. Yes, and we're just unwilling to do that because of ethical reasons. We could, we can program you 
<laughs> we can. This is mind control. We can take over. We can get you to do anything we want you to do. Oh. But we're just not because we're ethical people. <laughs> That's yeah. I mean, I I do think though sometimes people um, they're fearful about behavior change because they do think that we have that kind of control, the ability to control people. And if that were true, they'd be right to be afraid. <laughs> can I? I, I got. I have two questions, and I guess I'll I'll start with the first. Mm-hmm. Um, as just an anecdote for ad for the ad agencies, I could tell you the the set of commercials that I dislike the most uh, recently have been the State Farm ad commercials because they've they they know the research that if you get people's attention, that is successful, and so. All so they they put in a bunch of horror movie jump scare stuff, where catastrophes are happening. This is the essence of all the of like all the commercials. Chris Paul is standing around. There's a deer that suddenly pops up and destroys things, and there's loud screeching noises and things are exploding, and it's it's very thing. And then everyone looks at each other and laughs. I was like, oh well, like, but it's to me as a someone you know who kind of works in this industry, it's very obvious what they're doing um and i'm sure it's successful but they're getting they're getting the heart rate up it 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 kind of annoys me and now it's happening because it'd be one thing if it was one ad but now it's starting to be campaign after ad campaign after ad campaign um and it's becoming very very prevalent so that 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 was just my anecdote you could feel free to comment on that if you want the other question i had was um, if you, you know, I know, I know the two of you, your background is in psychology and I was just curious if you had thoughts and musings on the bodies of research between behavioral psychology and behavioral economics, because they, the, when we talk about behavior change, um, especially if you look at the research papers, they're just written in such a totally different way. It's such a different way of looking at behavior t- change from a, kind of decision tree economics variable blah 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 versus the brain science what's going on in the brain brain pathways you know um research so those were those are my those are my two things feel free to comment go 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 for it (laughs) well i have to i i agree I, I'm, I don't think I've seen those specific State Farm commercials, but I have noticed, you know, that of course every every brand is bringing out their, uh, you know, pandemic commercials, and some of them just are so obviously crafted to tug on the heartstrings, and it it just drives me crazy. And I'm sure that they're effective with some people, but I'm watching it. I'm like, oh, it's so obvious what you're doing, and like so manipulative. So. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. In terms of the, the two bodies of research, this is another one where I struggle because, uh, you know, I, I think I think on the whole, behavioral the fact that behavioral economics exists is a good thing because it is creating a bigger shared understanding of the way that humans behave and the way that we can help to shape the environment and various experiences in order for people to achieve positive outcomes. So like on the whole, I think it's a really great thing. I have been very frustrated though, because I think behavioral economics is accessible to people in a way that um, psychology has not been. So specifically, I think nudges are really capturing people's imagination. And I don't think that the, you know, I don't think that Thaler and Sunstein would agree that this is correct about nudges, but my perception in talking to clients and people who are interested in using behavior science in projects is that nudges feel like magic tricks. Like this is a specific thing that I can do and it's going to reliably yield a certain outcome. And so let's build a website that's full of nudges that will lead people to buy our product or, you know, whatever, whatever the outcome is that the client is looking for. And there really is, and needs to be a much more nuanced conversation again about, you know, other dynamics that may be at play. It's not always as simple as, as nudging somebody to a specific, single behavior. Like sometimes you're really looking for a more involved or deliberate behavior or something that has to take place repeatedly over time. And in behavioral economics, I don't think always deals as well with that as some of the psychological theories and approaches do. And then, um, you know, understanding context as well. So I, I think behavioral economists understand that and they approach it with all of that nuance, but the general public 
just sees like, oh, nudges, let's do those. And so there's been some frustration for me in navigating that with, um, you know, the non-expert audiences, I guess I'll say. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'll, when, when, when you get a copy of my book, I have a, I'll just a little, it's even, it's two pages just about nudges where I, I actually, um, go and get some Richard Thaler quotes about what he thinks a nudge, nudge is. And I've seen it in my professional life where I see a lot of people talking about nudges and they keep saying nudges and it's just manipulations. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not a nudge. And um, Mr. Thaler, in his own words, he's like, he compares a nudge to a GPS system. Like, you want to go to this certain place. I am helping you get there. Um, but you're free to turn left or right. You, like, you don't have to follow the map at any time. And if you do that, then we'll just help sort of redirect you to get to you to your goal. And that's very different than let's, um, let's just hide the telephone number so no one calls customer service. Like it, so so I, right. nudges have become very yep. popular, but you're totally right. The, the, the sort of the nuance and what they actually mean and the sort of, um, that, that sort of goes out the window because it's a lot easier to get short-term results if you just kind of use sort of a brute force economic model. Yeah, yeah. And I I actually, I wrote an entire chapter on trust in my book, partly because one of the things I I think, and there's all kinds of reasons for this, I think in general, in the United States, at least our entire, the way that our society operates from a business perspective is really geared towards short term results, you know, making sure that the next month or the next quarter looks good. And so at least in my experience as a consultant, I will have clients who will say like, yeah, bury the 1-800 number because we, you know, calls into the the helpline are a key metric. And if we report that those calls are high, then, you know, that's no good for us. We want to reduce time on phone. And what they're not thinking about is the longer term relationships that they can have with their customers. So if you, you may need to invest more upfront, you may need to go through more of those pain points and, you know, take the call on the 1-800 line and help somebody through their issue. But in doing so, you secure their loyalty and you you learn things about your product that help you to improve it so that people aren't calling the 1-800 number, not because they can't find it, but because they don't need to call it. So, you know, I, I think there's really, I would just love to see us able to think more over the long term as opposed to the short term. And I, I don't think that, like, I'm not necessarily blaming companies or individual people for this, because like I said, I do think that our society is kind of set up to force this focus on the short term, but ultimately I think it's to our detriment. Um, one, one thing I, I, you know, so I, my undergrad degree is in economics. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, I do sort of think, or I don't worry is not the right word, but if there's going to be sort of a jets versus sharks, uh, psychologist versus economics, like who, like who gets to claim the behavioral science hill and like plant plant the flag because it because it's two very different ways of doing research and doing i mean a lot of those behavioral economics studies there's they they do a couple cool stuff with some live people and then they just come up with a theoretical model that is kind of close to the way the world works but not really but it's that's the whole point is just to be theoretical and see how the different levers and stuff move and it's Mm -hmm. just totally not what the behavioral psychologists want to do at all <laughs> and and so like there's this like very strange push and pull and, and some um of course some uh uh people are able to just very gracefully slide right in the middle and do a little bit of both you know that like the Ariellis of the world who kind of can mm-hmm. can dance above uh those things but i i don't know so i i try not to get um i try not to do you know my side versus other side, but I do kind of always like cough into my shoulder. I was like Kahneman and Tversky were there first. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I just re- oh, what is the book? The Michael Lewis book, the uh, um, the Undoing Project. I just oh, read yeah. that about Kahneman and Tversky and their relationship. But I remember, um, so you know, I went to when did Nudge come out? 2010, 2011? Um, yeah. I finished. Sneaky old book, by the way. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I had finished grad school before that came out, so nudges weren't a thing yet. But I remember reading Kahneman and Tversky and, and, you know, thinking this is really useful stuff. This is a really useful way to understand some of the cognitive biases that people bring to their behavior. I, I didn't imagine at that time, though. I guess I, I also didn't really know as much about the context because I was reading I was reading it more in terms of my general psychology education. But, um, you know, not understanding that this was the field of economics starting to bring in some human irrationality and, and like, closing that chasm. Uh, yes, and I should just just briefly say for the, uh, for the field of economics, the idea of bringing humans into the equation, which you would think would be a pretty smart thing to do, um, that has been very much revolutionizing many fields of um, economics for the last like 40 years and not just on the behavioral side so like there were when I was in college uh, all the econ Nobel prizes that were being handed out a lot of them were for like for like frictions time delays basically humans being messy mm -hmm. and meaning that things weren't happening instantly and that and the implications of that on like you know microeconomics so so like this idea that well, oh, wait, humans are not these like perfect vehicles. And so there's noise and there's stickiness and there's messiness. And this is this has been from my vantage point, the economics has been trying to incorporate that for like 40 years, somewhat successfully, mostly unsuccessfully. But well, because yeah, and because the the implication uh, and this is so funny because talking about this because, you know, our business reflects this right because i'm the psychologist you're the economist um and and i th i think we've brought the two together fairly well but uh maybe not but you know to me the economics side uh, is kind of uh, underneath the economics part of it in my opinion it's like oh those pesky humans messing up our <laughs> models you know and uh or just, you know, the fact that Ariely's book is called Predictably Irrational, and then I complain about that all the time because it's like, <laughs> it's not irrational. People are not being irrat. People are being people. This is, this is what humans do. This is human behavior. There's actually nothing irrational about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I actually lived out a version of this struggle earlier because um, my, my PhD is in organizational psychology. So yeah. my Wait, course hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, as the non-psychology PhD person in the room, <laughs> can, yeah. can you just explain? You mean, what is that? You want to know what <laughs> yeah. just moving, moving right along. Uh, so it's basically um, applied social psychology, focusing specifically on people's behaviors in organizations. And, you know, in terms of my, my individual research, I'm not a hardcore organizational psychologist by any means. I'd say I'm, I'm more of a social psychologist who um, wanted to work with a professor who was in an organizational psychology program. But the coursework that I was required to take was half in the psychology department and then half in the business school in yeah. the uh, human resources and organizational behavior area. And a lot of those classes took this population's view of organization. So I, I, I had one professor, I absolutely adore him as a, like he's an, a brilliant man and a great teacher and a wonderful human, but I hated his class because he would talk about these population ecology studies of organizations where they basically look at macro data. So you might look at a market and see over time, like which organizations expand through, you know, acquisition or, or other growth and which ones go out of business and then they would create these behavioral models, but they would never actually look at individual people at all. It was just based on this sort of like macro data. And I remember sitting in the classroom with him and being like, where are the people? And he's like, organizations are people. It was <laughs> such a frustration to me. And I remember, um, and I specifically remember, because like I said, the reason that I even went into that program was I really wanted to work with one of the faculty members there and she'd accepted me to be her student. So it was sort of like, all right, I'll change my, area of study a little bit so that I can work with this person. And I remember thinking like, oh God, I'm not gonna make it in an org psych program. Like this is not for me. <laughs> um, and it, it worked out like, especially as I gained some, some confidence and realized that I didn't necessarily have to be a population ecologist in order to be an organizational psychologist. But um, 
yeah, wow, that was hard. Well, you know, a lot of times if you can, it's very complex. And if you can figure out how to bridge, I mean, at least mathematically, if you can figure out how to bridge the uh, microeconomic behaviors with the macro level um, for, uh, like theories, you, you're on the short list for Nobel Prizes basically every year. So it's not, it's not, a, not exactly an easy problem to solve. Um, so I, and I can say it's probably a, a big factor in not talking yeah. about the people. <laughs> All right. I have another book question. Okay. Which is, uh, you one of, let's see, Guthrie just finished filming and Guthrie, you have to remind me, did we, have we, we haven't, did we publish this course yet? Which one? Behavioral design process. Yeah. It's up it's okay. up everywhere. I couldn't remember. We We're have uh, we so yeah, because because we haven't our our workshop schedule is uh, non existent anymore. So Except now we're starting yep. to do some online workshops, but we had this whole you know, I'm sure this was true for you too, Amy. We had this I mean our March, April, May, June was just packed with uh, in-person workshops and speaking gigs, and then, you know, it all disappeared, right? Yeah. Really quickly um, with COVID. So we've been uh, filming a lot. We've been filming because we, have, we have this backlog of online uh, video courses to create. And so we, we just like, okay, let's work on that. So we've been filming those. So we have all these courses some of which are done, some of which we're in the middle of, and I can't remember sometimes whether we published one or not. Yeah, BDP, anyway, BDP is done and BDP. published. We just, we just published a course on, you know, what we use as a behavioral design process. And so then uh, when I was looking, when I was reading your book, I, I said to Guthrie, Amy has a behavioral design process. <laughs> uh, so, which was kind of fun to see. And yeah. and I and although you know you use different terms for things, I think I think it probably I'm sure there's probably a lot our process has in common with your process. But do you want to just talk about that for a minute? Like like what you know? Do you think a behavioral design process going through a process if you want to do behavioral change design? You know, is that important? And you know, what are the important parts of the process? And what is following a process by you? And, yeah, I, I do think using a process is important um, for two kind of separate sets of reasons. One is for organizing the work and the people on the team. And especially, uh, you know, in my situation, I very rarely work with other behavior change people. So I, I do have a team at work of others who have that expertise. But on a typical project, there's only one of us and we're working embedded in a team of other design professionals. So I'm kind of representing behavior change design and making sure that that gets built into the way that we do the project. Having a clear process really helps me to make sure that that happens and that other people on the team who may not have the same level of expertise or familiarity that I do can clearly understand the role that they need to play in that. So that's one thing. But then too, I think that having a process is really important in order to get to the right outcomes. And the specific piece that I think is just so critical, the discipline that like if I, if I just had to pick one thing that um, we absolutely can't get rid of in the process is going through the exercise up front of really defining which behaviors you're going to change and how you're going to know if you were successful in doing that. Does so, it sound familiar, Guthrie? Hey, uh, I, have, I have the unfortunate um, uh, news that we completely agree in every facet <laughs> of our... We're not we came up, we independently both discovered calculus at the same time. <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny. I, so I think I may have even made this. Um, I may have made this point in the book. I definitely made it verbally. I do think that most people who follow a behavior change design process, regardless of the labels that we use, it's basically the same process. It follows the scientific model, right? You you come up with a hypothesis and you want to be super clear about it, and then you go gather the evidence to test it, and you refine based on what you learn. Uh, the way that you might break that out into phases or what you might call them, you know, your mileage may vary there, but we're all, really all approaching it pretty similarly. Yeah. And that's a good. The the, pro the process that we kind of came up with is very, very heavy on the initial step. What are the outcomes that you want? Uh, what, like, what is it? Be very clear. Make sure everyone agrees. 
that on the behavior you want to change. Because um, we, we find, I mean, uh, we've seen this in a number of our clients where you go into a room and, like, the person who's in charge of marketing wants this behavior change because that's their metrics. And then the, the person in charge of IT is like, well, we can't do any of that. And then the other person, you know, so it's just everyone sort of has what you want and you can't, you usually can't get all of it at the same time. You got to pick your priorities. So, yes, ours is very, is also front loaded because that's where a lot of the sort of problems mm -hmm. and stickiness are. And, and we really love it. We, we, we had a, a case not too long ago where, uh, yeah, we we were going to be meeting with a client. We were going to be meeting with the whole C level team of the whole company, which was great. Medium right? size, medium small. This, this medium is not, small not company, target but, or anything crazy. No, no. But we're going to get them all, all the C level people in the room at the same time for like, uh, what was it, like a full day, which is like you know usually don't have that opportunity. So this was going to be great. We're going to get them all in, and so we, I think we had asked beforehand, Guthrie, for if we could talk to people and just find out yeah. right what they're basically what the outcomes were that that this person was looking for versus this person versus this person mm -hmm. and the person we were working with who was one of the c-level people who was putting this all together said to us oh we don't need to do that and you don't <laughs> need to have that at the beginning of your of the workshop day because we are all in agreement <laughs> and oh, we were boy. like we were like <laughs> sure great then it should so, only take a few minutes right 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 so uh, we just we decided not to fight about it with yeah not and we just said great that sounds great and of course we planned our day on the fact that we were gonna spend a good <laughs> chunk of the time at the beginning getting this straightened out and it, and it was true because and they all thought right they all thought they were in agreement but when we went around the room and asked right at what was what the outcomes would be and how you would measure that they were not at all in agreement. So it was good. I mean, it was and it was great fun to to bring the group to to agreement on it. But yeah, I think yeah. So I I'm pretty sure our, our process stuff is, is the um, same. Can yeah. I ask another question? Yeah. So another thing that I've sort of noticed is that a lot of times when we ask people, so what you know, what are you trying to achieve? Like right, like what do you want to you know you're trying to do with something? What what is it that that's important to you? I find that a lot of times we're told, hey, you know, we're, we want higher customer engagement and we'd like more conversions and we want our net promoter score to go up or whatever, whatever it is. But whenever, and so they, they kind of say all these things that are important and then at every single juncture, if the question is, if we just do this, will we make more money? They always pick the thing that's just like make more money. Mm -hmm. And so they say these things that they say they're important, and it turns out the only thing that matters is just increasing revenue, and then everyone's happy. Yeah, I think that gets back a little bit to some of the, you know, what are what are people rewarded for in the way that mm -hmm. our corporate culture is set up? Um, I don't, and you know, I don't think we're ever going to get fully rid of a focus on profits. That's kind of why businesses exist in a lot of cases. But um, this short term focus, I, I think you're exactly right. Like what is going to make me more profit now? What's going to bring in more revenue right now? And that isn't always the same thing that is going to be effective for the long haul, unfortunately. And so I think that's often the piece that we have to t tease out with clients, you know, really understanding like, okay, you, you can maximize your revenue right now but you're going to see a lot of churn in your customers or, you know, you're not going to realize this potential huge profit later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hey, Amy, um, I can't believe we managed to use up an entire hour. Uh, I think we could probably talk to you for like four hours, but uh, we may have to have you back on so we can talk more. But I do want to say before we let you go, yeah, sure. I do want to encourage our listeners to check out your book. It's called Engaged. Designing for Behavior Change, and we'll, uh, you know, we'll put this in the show notes, and and you know, have a link and and so on. But um, thank you. Oh, I do have a question before I thank you. Yeah, I have you. a question. Let too. you go. All right. Uh, my question is, if people want to reach you, what's the best way for them to get hold of you? Oh, uh, that's a great question. So I am on Twitter. My handle is Amy B PhD. 
And then that's good. Say that again. Amy oh, that's what? good. Amy D. PhD. Dang. Amy so, PhD. Rhymes and Amy everything. B. Okay. A M Y B P H D. I B P H D. Got it. And uh, okay. Yes. Then you know I'm on LinkedIn. You can email me a buker at madpow.net or um, you know I'm I'm all over the web. So, but Twitter okay. tends to be a good one. I I like being on Twitter. I find that I have a lot of great conversations on there, often with people I otherwise wouldn't have met. So okay. it's one of my favorite ways to chat with new people. Okay. And uh, Guthrie, what yes, did you my question. I we we had we I had to ask the one quick question about ethics on a scale of one to ten. Oh my God, we didn't talk about ethics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I now I, I that that didn't pass. Uh, yeah, but ethics, uh, on a scale right. of just one to ten, with worry, where one is, uh, I it never crosses my mind, and ten is catastrophic doom for society. Uh, when how worried are you about um, ethics of people using the unlocked Magical magic's not the right. The unlocked power of this sort of new field uh, in an, in unethical ways. Uh, I'm probably about a six. Um, I I think that there are. So we talked a little bit before about you know behavior change is really hot right now, and I think one of the good things that's happening is we we're building up a corpus of you know qualified ethical caring professionals who are out there doing the work to mitigate some of the the misuse of these techniques. And so that's why I'm only a six and not like an eight or a nine. I, I do think there are some, um, you know, there's some bad actors who want to manipulate people. And then there are some folks who just don't know better. But fortunately, there's also a lot of us who are out there trying to make sure that these things are used correctly. And so at least in the near term, I think that as long as we keep up our vigilance and, and you know, keep making sure that we have a voice in the conversation, we'll be able to stave off anything too, too bad. I hope. Cool. Wow. Hey, that's that, that's a that's a nice pes- uh, optimistic note. I'm trying. She's pretty optimistic. Yeah, Susan's always a pessimist about everything. So, <laughs> you know, I I have not felt optimistic lately. I have to tell you. So I I'm actually really happy to hear you say that. I feel reassured <laughs> that I'm not losing my soul in the pandemic. <laughs> Absolutely. Amy, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you both. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, this is great to me. Thank you. Stay in touch. Thanks. Bye. Bye.